Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. Welcome back, shit-givers. There's a lot going on out there. Our world is changing and being changed every single day, and you can take part in that change. You can help fix this shit. I talk to the smartest, most impactful people on the planet to provide you with the inspiration and tools you need to one, feel better, and two, to fight for a better future for everyone. Our guests are scientists and CEOs, doctors and founders, nurses, journalists, farmers, policymakers, activists, astronauts. We even had a reverend. If you want to be inspired to find out how to make that radical change, hit the subscribe button right now to get even more conversations, stories, and tools coming your way. You can also scroll through the feed or go to podcast.importantnotimportant.com to find 130-ish evergreen episodes covering everything from clean energy to cancer and artificial intelligence ethics to regenerative agriculture. A reminder, you can send questions, feedback, or guest recommendations to me on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can always email me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. My guest today is Dr. Madhukar Pai. He is the Canada Research Chair of Epidemiology and Global Health at McGill University and the Associate Director of the McGill International Tuberculosis Center. He is the Commissioner of the Lancet Commission on Diagnostics and is on about 500 editorial boards, including Lancet Infectious Diseases and the Public Library of Science, or PLOS if you're cool, Medicine, where he is the Editor-in-Chief. Dr. Pai is the recipient of the Union Scientific Prize and a number of others, and has over 300 publications. For context, folks, I once lost a Webby to Malala. Here's why I asked Dr. Pai to be on the show today. Dr. Pai is an outspoken advocate for vaccine equity. It's been 26 months or 300 years since many of us, if we were so lucky, started to pull our kids from schools and set up laptops in our kitchens. For so many others, especially in the service industry here in America, for immigrants and marginalized citizens living in tight spaces in multi-generational homes, working in tighter spaces on their feet, constantly exposed, those kitchen zooms were never and are still not an option. In January 2021, incredible new vaccines were finally, and I'll come back to finally, they were released for the highest risk segment of the general public, and then further and, and further, and now almost everyone over the age of five is eligible, and a multitude of vaccines are available and, frankly, plentiful in developed countries. Now, I say finally, because for so many of us, it felt like that year where those of us lucky enough to be able to stay at home was, again, about 300 years, despite the fact that these vaccines were developed, tested, manufactured, and distributed in truly record time. And despite the fact that they are some of the most effective vaccines we've ever made, still, four major variants later. Now, many of us got our shots as soon as they were available to us. Not enough kids have them yet, but many folks, and as someone with a chronic disease, I do get it, many folks are just done with this whole thing. They're done with boosters, they're done with masks, they're done with their kids living in an upside-down childhood. And I get it. They have, for the most part, done all they were asked to do most of the time, and they're just ready to move on. But we have failed, and I don't use that word lightly, failed to do what's necessary to bring this thing under control globally, much less to get ahead of it. When a novel coronavirus strikes and your N is every living person on the planet, that means two plus years in, your job is still to vaccinate every one of those people to take potential hosts away from the virus. Because, folks, every person who is not vaccinated with even just a first shot is not only susceptible to sickness and death and all the second-order effects of missing work, missing family obligations, and more macro effects like blunting any progress we've made on poverty and childhood diseases, but they are also a vector for transmission and potential mutations of SARS-CoV-2. And as of this moment, 60% of the world's population has received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. And look, on the one hand, that's incredible. But it also means 40% of the world's population 
has not. And those 40%, of course, are not distributed equally. Only 9.5% of people in low-income countries have received at least a single dose. We have given more boosters in high-income countries than first shots in low-income countries. Let that settle in. That's 3.1 billion people that, over a year after shots began rolling out, do not have a single one yet. And again, until they do, whether you like it or not, this does not end for any of us. It is crucial, so crucial, that we all understand this. The answer to vaccinate the world is both incredibly simple. It is the only way out and immensely complicated. It is one of politics and people, and it didn't start with COVID. But understanding that machine is how we move forward. And I couldn't imagine anyone better to help us than Dr. Pai. Dr. Pai, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Quinn. Doctor, let's start at 30,000 feet, if we could. I've written about vaccine equity quite a lot. Feels like yelling from the rooftops sometimes. So our community is certainly not ignorant about any of this. Um, But I understand how they can feel impotent uh, in trying to change it. Again, 30,000 feet. In the U.S., uh, health systems are are more overwhelmed than they've ever been because Omicron is so contagious. And again, the math is very simple. The same percentage of a much bigger pie is a huge number. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Cases are starting to drop a little bit. And uh, Omicron has been described as more mild. But again, that's for, for you with three shots most of the time because it's so transmissible because 25% of Americans don't have a single shot yet. Um, that's still 80 plus million people who, who, who are eligible to go to the hospital basically. But in low income countries, the macro effect is just devastating, like we said, with poverty and all these other diseases. So doctor, as someone who spent their life working on these sort of diseases, tuberculosis and others, where are we really starting to see the big second order effects of all of this time without vaccine equity. Firstly, I want to congratulate you. That was such a brilliant summary, <laughs> really. It hit every single major important issue um, that I've been worried about. Uh, there's just one correction. Um, uh, only 10% of low-income country populations have received even one dose. Um, so, so it's a massive disparity between high-income country and low-income countries as far as vaccination co- coverage goes. About 80% of people like you and I in the richest parts of the world have received at least one dose, and it's only 10% in low-income countries. So 80 versus 10 is a massive differential in the in the vaccine equity. Now, what this has done is, imagine if America and Canada, with all our wealth, with all our vaccines, easy access to vaccines. We were the first in line, weren't we? We are also the first in line for the new antiviral pills. For everything and anything, we are the first in line. With all of that, if our health systems are on the brink, then I just want us to close our eyes and imagine countries where 5% of the population is vaccinated, 10% of the population is vaccinated, where the per capita GDP is several fold lower than us where the health systems are already so fragile to begin with, I keep asking myself, how on earth would they withstand this virus, right? And I myself um, got to see this kind of firsthand, right? So here, like like most of us, you know, I, I, I also have this privilege that I live in Canada, right? I got my shots when I was eligible. My family could stay at home, you know, get a salary and we could weather it out, sure. right? We are the most privileged people. Anyone who got their second shots or the third shots and who can survive during this crisis, have a secure income is, is ridiculously privileged. Mm-hmm. And I saw what it could do to the other part of the world where that, those privileges may not exist, and that was India, my other country, my country of birth. During the Delta wave in India last summer, I mean, the whole world saw India in distress, right? People gasping for oxygen, sure. funeral pyres everywhere. When the dust has settled, the estimated 3 million people died, close to 3 million people died in three months. Three million in three months is what this virus is capable of doing at its worst, right? That Delta variant just blitzes its way through India, lets scores of people dead, and, and the economy is collapsed. Any other disease progress that we've made, tuberculosis, we've lost like a decade of progress in TB, 
immunization for children, basic stuff like measles, BCG, mumps, rubella. We've lost 15 years of progress of childhood immunization, right? HIV testing has gone down in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, violence against women and girls have increased during this uh, pandemic period because of lockdowns and insecurities. Poverty is extreme poverty is climbing up again and trillions of dollars of economic losses have mounted during the last two years or so. And I keep asking myself, why wouldn't someone intervene to stop this carnage, right? Why would world leaders sit by and watch such devastating impact of this pandemic and not do what is morally, ethically, scientifically just and, and necessary, right? And, and a variant after variant has come by. And yet, G7 leaders, G20 leaders, they are doing shit to end this pandemic. They don't give a damn and they've not done anything to help vaccinate the world, let alone share other technologies like antiviral medicines and rapid sure. tests and all the stuff that is necessary to end the pandemic. So I, I had tweeted recently and said, how many more variants will it take? How many more deaths will it take? And how many more trillions of economic losses will it take before world leaders get their shit together and do what is necessary to end this pandemic everywhere for all people. Because if we allow this vaccine inequity to continue, like you said, 3.2 billion people unvaccinated, if this continues and if the Omicron continues to march through millions of people, I mean, just by math alone, right, each person will generate billions of copies of the virus particles. And you multiply that by millions of people currently infected with Omicron, you end up with the staggering number that I can't even do the math on. That many copies of the virus are being made worldwide right now. Right. Never seen during this pandemic. The amount of transmission we are seeing has never been seen in the history of this pandemic. Why would it not produce mutations? And why would some of them not turn out to be more nasty than Omicron in the coming years, coming months? Thank you for sharing all that. So, again, sometimes I ask... Uh, my guess, among the world's smartest folks like yourself, as we say, working on the front lines of the future, to to uh, speak to me as if I was a kindergartner. Despite my best efforts, I always say, and I know you're at the university, I try to get a 301 in every one of these subjects before, and eventually they add up. But I'm, I'm still just me, a liberal arts major, a long time ago. I want to go back to this. I, it's not an idea. I mean, it, it keeps happening. It's going to keep happening. It's how... how viruses work, which is they're going to do two things. They're going to keep looking for hosts until they can't find any. Um, and uh, it's going to uh, keep trying to survive, essentially. Um, and it's going to keep mutating. Um, uh, I, I had done some reading where um, I, I know someone had had talked about the, the possibility, and I wonder if you can sort of quantify or explain this a little more, that there's this idea, right, that we got lucky with Omicron because as much as, look, it's not SARS or MERS, right, and it's not Delta, but at the same time, because it's less deadly, it's more transmissible, et cetera, et cetera. It's in your upper respiratory as opposed to in your lungs, and maybe that's making it, you know, having more breakthroughs, whatever it might be. Forget everyone who's already still unvaccinated. There's this idea that, well, if it's so prevalent and it wiped Delta off the map in so many places and it's and it's sweeping through all these populations, even if there is another variant, what are the odds that it would be a descendant of something like Omicron and thus still less deadly but more transmissible? Does that hold up in any way or is that just a guess? I mean, this is that's way beyond my pay grade when it comes to virology. I'm not a vir virologist either, but I'm, I'm an infectious diseases epidemiologist, sure. right? So there was a spectacular uh, paper in Nature just published uh, yesterday or day before, okay. basically written by a viral evolution experts who basically saying there is no preordained biological pathway that viruses will always mutate to being less severe. He said it's a big myth that is being currently circulated that, oh, look, Omicron was mild, so therefore the next variant will be mild. He said there's absolutely no okay. reason at all why that trajectory has to happen. It is not preordained by any stretch. 
And then he also says that virus mutations and its trajectory is inherently unpredictable. It is a matter of luck on which part of the virus gets mutated, right? Which part of the virus spike proteins or not, what is impacted and what its cumulative effect will be. Mm -hmm. We saw that Omicron has multiple mutations, right? Some of them may make the virus less dangerous. Others may make the virus more dangerous. And it's a cumulative effect of that. It's inherently hard to uh, predict, right? There is evidence that the second wave of the Spanish flu in the uh, 100 years ago was much worse Mm. than the first wave, right? The Delta variant, which came much after the first Wuhan virus and then the alpha and the beta was much more lethal than the previous variants. So there is no reason at all to kind of buy into this myth or this hype that it's all done, right? Omicron has pretty much vaccinated the world that we can move on. And I'm already starting to see a lot of articles in the lay lay press written by, I would say, people from a business or econ background, people who have, uh, I think, a vested interest in declaring the pandemic over. And I tweeted that triple vaccinated people in the global north are tweeting that or saying that the pandemic is over when 3.2 billion people are still unvaccinated in the global south. I mean, if you and I have had three doses, for example, what is a three-dose coverage in low-income countries? Zero. Zero. So effectively, you have unvaccinated, unprotected people in massive numbers. I think it's absolutely reckless and stupid and scientifically um, very, very responsible to claim that the pandemic is over, just coming arguing from our position of privilege. And and that's what's interesting to me, because, you know, these administrations are not always often filled with some pretty intelligent and capable folks, often well-meaning. I mean, in the end, it is politics, right? Um, But there's some fantastic people there. I mean, things get caught up, right? You saw President Biden hired every, every like, progressive climate person that that someone could find. Like, our ranks were just pilfered uh, to go into this, uh, his new efforts. And yet we've done very little outside of executive actions because of politics. That's the way it goes, right? And also because as much as, on the one hand, uh, you know, the climate crisis is uh, how we should define it is it is the air we breathe and the water we drink and, and the heat we feel and, and all of these things, right? But on the other hand, it's easy for folks, and again, I try to empathize with folks who are like, right, I hear the jet stream slowing down. Like, what am I supposed to do about that? It can be vague. It can be just impenetrable. I get that. Again, the math on this seems so simple. Um, uh, This isn't, for instance, um, malaria, right, which is relatively geographically uh, restricted um, because of a host of number of of factors, right? It's easy. Uh, It's almost understandable for privileged people in, in, in develop, more developed countries to, to be able to ignore that, right? Unless they're giving to, to uh, malaria funds or whatever it might be. But this is not that. So you can either take this action because it's just, or you can take it because mathematically and scientifically, it's the correct thing to do to get us out of this, again, much less ahead of it, because this idea of relying on luck seems so just out of touch with how this actually works. I don't understand how there could be so many, again, intelligent, well-meaning people involved in it, these developed administrations around the world, and someone's not going, no, like, it's just a simple whiteboard of going, like, this is how it works. So on that note, though, and and, and I, we've talked about this uh, on our show, which has been a little bit of a hiatus, but certainly in our, in our writings, there is a massive effort that exists. It just seems to be broken from top to bottom. So I want to talk about COVAX. The failure points... Uh, plentiful, right? From these pledges all the way to production and and distribution. So uh, the goal, at least the current goal, which is not going to happen, to be clear, was to vaccinate 70% of the world by mid-2022, which is in five months now. If we could, again, I want to help folks understand how this works or how how the sausage is not being made. I I would like to go through this sort of supply chain to understand why and how and where it's not working. So if we could, let's actually start with uh, the patent situation. Could you talk us through the TRIPS waiver and what that would 
unlock and all the we can get into the dominoes behind it absolutely so so the trips waiver isn't anything new right so in the early days of the hiv when the first antiretroviral treatments were uh, available it was completely uh, unaffordable and inaccessible to large numbers of countries mm-hmm. especially the african continent so at that time a lot of people uh, were courageous and bold that they wanted to use the trips waiver to start manufacturing antiretrovirals in countries like india generic medicines mm-hmm. and they successfully did in the end they faced a lot of hostile opposition from the pharma industry but in the end countries like brazil south africa india were very bold and courageous because they thought hiv was going to decimate them sure. and they did what they had to do to survive mm-hmm. right so they used the trips waiver clause the Doha declaration as it is called and they went ahead and developed antiretroviral medicines from $10,000 a year it dropped to like you know $200 a mm-hmm. year dramatic case study in the in the whole field of global health sure. right books have been written about it movies have been made about it so it isn't anything mm-hmm. new this time around when covid vaccines were developed people india and south africa again you see it's the same historical countries that had the courage india and south africa petitioned saying that we need the intellectual property temporarily waived at least sure. so that the recipe can be handed over to multiple countries companies around the world mm-hmm. to start cranking the vaccines that we need in order to vaccinate our populations why is that because the rich countries made a run for the vaccines the minute vaccines came on board US Canada UK Europe Israel all of them went to the front of the queue pretty much bought up all of the supplies for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. leaving very little for anyone else and virtually nothing for covax right so although covax mechanism was intended to supply low and middle income countries manufacturers preferentially started supplying us israel england so on and so forth why because manufacturers will always supply those who are willing to pay a lot mm-hmm. right sure all of us the richest nations were willing to pay premium dollars and we pretty much bought up enough contracts take canada for example canada ordered close to 6 to 10 fold more vaccines than the population of canada that's the number of contracts and purchases that canada green lighted thinking that they were hedging their bets they wanted they didn't know what was going to work or not we pretty much clogged up the procurement uh, pipeline leaving very little for covax so covax was waiting where's our vaccine where's our vaccine right and countries like canada although we contributed to covax we also undermined covax by directly making deals with pfizers and moderna's and and johnson and johnsons right. right instead of waiting for covax to supply we directly cut deals and then covax donations and pledges were plenty but the activity on the pledges are dismal even today barely a quarter of the pledges have been successfully delivered so covax is missing all its targets and even when vaccines are being donated they're being donated close to expiration like one month before expiration right and so african countries are saying no we can't take this because we can't possibly get them into arms sure. with just a few weeks of of life left on the on the vaccines it's been a complete disaster and lack of engagement of low and middle income countries in constructing covax itself is now painfully obvious that you don't have your end stakeholders in mind so i i'm starting to see covax as a failed charity exercise right rich nations always like to do charity they never want to truly empower or share power in any way possible today to go back and close the trip story 100 countries have approved or backed the trips waiver 100 countries around the world millions of people have signed off and announced for it who is blocking it canada uk european union Biden administration was first blocking it and then Biden said yes but the government hasn't done much as you know very well Biden can't even get the domestic pandemic under control yeah. so he is no position to lead globally this has also been pretty distressing to see right two of the most powerful nations US and UK have done so miserably with their own domestic pandemic situation that they can't even get their head out of the weeds to look to see what the heck is happening outside so global leadership itself is is flailing and nobody seems to want to listen to who 
right? So you now have a this like a headless horse running around the the yard. Nobody is driving the ship. Nobody has a global plan on how to get the pandemic under control. Every country has gone nationalistic, populist, and isolationist. Right? This is the flavor of how this is working out. And look what it's doing. Because we are so inward looking, there is nobody orchestrating the bigger pandemic control. We are getting slammed with new, new more and more variants. And with every variant, I fear that we are becoming more and more isolationist, more and more insular in our thinking. And this is guaranteed to prolong the pandemic. Yeah, again, it's it's math. It's it's also sociology and anthropology. I mean, this is what's going to happen. I mean, you know, like you said, it's been 100 years since the flu. It's uh, you know, 20, 30-ish years uh, since since AIDS exploded, and, and we and of course the U.S. Uh, purposefully ignored that for for quite a while. Um, you know, it's it's again, I I don't want to always come back to like, boy, if this is what's happening with this, like, what about climate? Um, but it's 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 pretty indicative of how we're going to operate if this is the way it goes. It's terrifying, actually. When I think about this pandemic, I have very little hopes that the world will get its shit together for for the saving the world from climate crisis. Yeah, our ability, our desire, and our our innate and well practiced ability to move on from things quickly, uh, even things on the home front, is is spectacular. Um, to just not do the math. So, all right. So we've got. Government invests millions of dollars with Moderna to to make these shots. Moderna reaping all the profits. It's the first product they've ever had, right? You've got Pfizer uh, making their own version of the mRNA shot. You've got Johnson & Johnson. You've got Novavax. All, all these different options now. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as you've described it, basically we, the, the richer countries put in a bunch of pre-orders to procure and essentially hoard, like you said, six to ten uh, times as many shots as we needed that continued to happen through boosters. So now we've seen, like we said, we're giving more boosters out than we are first shots. So one of the, it seems like the issues from, for example, the African countries are saying, not only are you not sending us enough shots, you are sending us the lower quality shots. Stuff that we thought we didn't want, like Canada is preferentially donating stuff that Canadians rejected. AstraZeneca and right. J&J. Which we decided weren't weren't good enough because the mRNA vaccines are quite literally among the greatest human accomplishments. I mean, they're, they're truly spectacular. Agreed. But we're not sending them the, the, those. So we're sending not no. enough of not the best shots. They're arriving with often barely a month left on the ticker uh, before they happen um, with no real local distribution help. However, <laughs> it, goes, it goes further, right? Because... The mRNA vaccines are actually, I know one of the early arguments was, look, this is a relatively new technology, or at least we've just perfected it and made it so the body didn't inflame itself. Dr. Carolyn Carrico, it's incredible what she's done. Now they work. They're amazing. But listen, guys, like you can't just make these anywhere. And meanwhile, I know, uh, and, and they might not be on the list yet, but from what I understand, a host of places like the Serum Institute have said, no, we can do this. So could you explain enough and, and dispel that myth if it exists? What are the capabilities that are out there should, for instance, uh, there be a temporary uh, dropping of these patent rights for other people. Oh, yeah. So so um, there was a fantastic New York Times story by Stephanie Nolan, who identified multiple, uh, something like 10 uh, companies in across Africa that can actually are capable of making mRNA vaccines. And subsequently, a big report by Medicine Sans Frontieres and other groups all has revealed that probably there are closer to 100 companies around the world that are capable of making mRNA vaccines. So so this has been an old trick in the book to say, oh, only the richest countries in the world are capable of making these vaccines, that other countries are not good enough to make them, right? Another commonly used argument is, okay, oh, countries don't have cold chain. They can't really use them, right? We can come up with all sorts of endless excuses to not do what we need to do. That is, give the recipe and transfer technology 
to as many companies as possible. Because if you actually did the math, if we now need three doses for protection, which is what I think we are starting to think of, then the global demand for vaccine just increased instantaneously, right? Earlier it was two, now it's three. So to do the math, seven plus billion people on the planet times three, right? That is the amount of vaccines the world needs. And to expect only Pfizer and Moderna to supply the whole world, especially with the hunger for boosters, exploding here in the rich world, right? Already Israel is pushing the fourth dose, Mm -hmm. right? This is new. Canadian government, Canadian Prime Minister tweeted saying that, don't worry, we have enough fourth doses for all Canadians. We are rapidly heading down this this, it's already done. Like the rich countries have like decided, oh, we're going to block travel from a bunch of countries that we don't like, right? Uh, we're going to have stricter border controls and we're going to boost ourselves again and again and again. And then, then we're going to say kumbaya and we're done, right? This is the, the myopic leadership that rich nations are demonstrating. Instead of saying, holy crap, we're never going to end this. We got to vaccinate the world here. For this extraordinary one-in-a-century crisis, we're going to hand the technology to as many people as possible. My my biggest problem, Quinn, is when it's it's a bit like I have a fire in my house, mm-hmm. okay, and I need water to to put down the fire. I get it, right? You need to first get the fire under control in your own house, otherwise you're going to burn, right? But then I'm going to hold the water. Why? Because maybe there is another fire coming in the future. But then the neighbor's house is burning. Do you want to hold on to that water? Or do you want to help the neighbor's house put out their fire? Because that neighbor's fire is going to come to you if you allow it to let rage, right? I'm I'm aware. I just spent 13 years living in Los Angeles. I mean, fire containment is all I thought about. Exactly. And so, so we are a village, right? The whole world is a village. No country is an island. We know it by now. We tried hard to keep Delta out of uh, coming from India, right? Did we succeed? No. Delta came and whipped through the planet. We tried to block travel from a bunch of African countries. What kind of a bullshit was that? Banning just a bunch of African countries when the virus was already circulating in America and Netherlands and whatnot? That was just bullshit racism. There was no no science to it. There was no logic to it. And then look, Omicron is everywhere now. When the next variant comes, there's already an Omicron sub-variant already that has emerged. You think we can keep that out? I mean, how long are we going to pretend and as if national boundaries make sense to the virus. Sure. Since when has any virus given two hoots for what the U.S. borders are, Canada borders are, or what African borders are? It's going to do what it does. It's going to whip through the world, right? So having a global solution, it's a bit like saying, oh, we're going to tackle climate crisis for just Canada, mm-hmm. Right? What BS is that? You either tackle t- yeah. the climate crisis for the whole planet or you don't. Sure. There is no such thing as I'm saving America, saving Canada. We are all sinking or swimming together as a planet. The same logic applies for a pandemic. You know, this is probably not the best analogy, but I think the principle of it holds up, which is how I think about, and I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with these things, and I, I hope you're able to ignore them in some way, but, you know, a lot of folks, and whether you're in power or not at any level, seem seem so content to rest on the laurels of, well, Omicron, as we discussed, is, is quote-unquote, more mild for a up-to-date vaccinated person, but not the health system anyways. It reminds me of the companies and countries making these uh, net zero pledges by 2050, right, uh, with no transparency, uh, no accountability, no measurable milestones of any sort. And it's usually on the back of these carbon capture, either through nature or through technologies that do work, but may never work at scale. And to be clear, our entire mission here is predicated on action and measurable, you know, legitimate action. When it comes to climate, the answer is we need to be doing all of the things, right? That's where we are now, right? So I'm a big believer in, yeah, sure, throw money at carbon capture and find out if it scales. That's how we got solar to where it is today, right? It's because we we worked on it and industrialized it and we made it happen. So we need to do all those things. But when you rely on these things that truly, like, might not exist to say, like, this is how we're doing our part, right? It reminds me of this booster thing, like you said. How easy is it for someone in the administration to say, closing down flights from these countries? Probably took them a second to make that judgment. I mean, how easy is that? You call a couple airlines and it's done, and you give everybody uh, another round of boosters. But what's so short-sighted about it is 
you've got an administration that's having in the U.S. that's having an impossible time getting anything done. Right. They've, yeah. I, I, I do believe that they've gotten a, a number of things done. It's easy to look at that objectively. But these grandiose sort of FDR level things that they promised, much less the pandemic and climate, right, have not gotten done. You've got these midterms coming up with traditionally the 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 uh, party in power just gets absolutely swept, rocked by. Right. Unless mm-hmm. you find a way. To tangibly prove to people that you are improving their day to day lives. Hmm. Hmm. And that's the only way that they're going to say, maybe we should keep these guys around, is if you are able to show them, it's the idea of like when, when Biden was giving out the pandemic checks and people were seriously saying, we should call them Biden bucks so people associate it with us when it's time mm-hmm. to vote again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you said, hopefully, probably not, but hopefully once in a lifetime opportunity where we are in such a hole that you could measurably approve, improve the life of every person in your country and around the planet, whether it's just or it's correct, turns out it's both, to actually measurably show people, I'm getting us out of this thing, which would improve your political fortunes, possibly. And you're just choosing not to do it. Again, it feels like I don't understand how that message is not getting through. You have this amazing opportunity in front of you. It's just, I don't know. So so I want to ask you that question too, because you're clearly thinking a lot about this and you're approaching it from uh, the climate crisis uh, and all the work happening in that area, right? All the activism around that. I mean, they've been shouting from the rooftops for what, how many years now, right? Climate activists. So... The Economist magazine published a story a while ago saying that the leaders of G7 are walking away from what they call the opportunity of a century, right? Somebody's done a math. It might cost what? I don't know, 50 billion to vaccinate the world, right? I don't care what it is. Somewhere in that range, okay? 50 billion for G7 would have been trivial compared to their GDP, right? And and the economist said the return on investment, ROI, that all business people care about, sure. would have been in the orders of 10,000, 10,000 fold return on investment. I mean, you think about the economics of just if everyone got back to work today and children today. were able to go back to school. If you freeze the economics there, forget all of the people that wouldn't get sick and wouldn't die down the line and what that does And we've to... lost 20 million people. So, so we're not even counting that, right? The economic losses. Again, it's to keep coming back to it. I mean, it's the, the other day they said in 2020, 2021, the U.S. suffered the climate losses uh, that were attributable to climate change from natural natural disasters uh, were about $145 billion. And you're like, Whoa. that's a check we're paying, but we won't pay to put a down payment down to do the rest so of this is it we pay billions or we pay trillions in losses and we're choosing to take trillions of losses how do you explain that i think i think i think we need to really ask the question that if our politicians everywhere are only capable of thinking about how do we win the next election how do we hold on to our power they can never think long term because climate crisis requires you to think long term sure. right ending the they, they can neither think long term in terms of time horizon nor they can think geographically to anything outside of their base their voting base right so for a californian even thinking about texas is too far away they don't care right oh, yeah. so then why would they care about abuja or or, or dhaka right sure. they don't care about the vaccination rates there so it seems like we are screwed fundamentally because our politicians will only do what is politically expedient mm-hmm. they will only appease their voting base they will never do anything that's long range because they don't know if they're going to be in power three months from now or three years from now so 30 years is too long for them 20 years is too long for them sure. even two years is too long for them nor can they justify to their voting base what why Kenya, Kenya's vaccine coverage matters, why Afghanistan's crisis is important for them, right? Or why the civil war in Ethiopia is important to them. If this is the way we are worldwide, and this is what is happening everywhere, how will we ever get out of this pandemic or avert a, a, a climate crisis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating. Forget 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road and climate and all these things. Again, you you have this opportunity to you're looking at being effectively swept out of power in 11 months, 10 months. And you there have you an go. opportunity to spend the next 10 months to stand up and say, 
this is how it works. This is the math. Yeah. And this is the money yeah. we're going to spend to do it. And yeah. because we're going to do this, because we're going to commit everything we have to this, by the time we get to November, this we're not going to be out of it, but we are going to be measurably better and possibly even ahead of it to the point where we can control it. And now, mm-hmm. you know, I've had mm-hmm. these conversations with uh, Sam Scarpino and Nahi Badalia, and there, there, there are all these amazing new institutes that have sprung up, and mm-hmm. Sam's working mm-hmm. with Rockefeller Center on wastewater, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're, we're mm-hmm. doing these things, you know. We can do genetic sequencing, uh, and we can do even more of that. We can scale that up. All these after effects. And there's all the people mm-hmm. who have been talking about pandemics for years saying, it's coming. Like, get ready for it, just like with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have these opportunities to to not only deal with this one, get ahead with this one, but prepare for the next one um, to build up these capabilities to say, okay, next time there are, like you said, um, you know, 10 to 20 companies in Africa that can build mRNA vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. We're ready to do these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Why would you not? Um, mm-hmm. So that's it. We, we've covered that ground, and I don't want to keep you forever here. We have developed some other options for dealing with folks who do get sick, like the antiviral pills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does distribution and availability look like for those that have been developed in in some of those countries? Is it a similar situation? So uh, the Pfizer pill, predictably, Mm -hmm. which looks the best, is predictably uh, all gobbled up by the richest nations. So U.S. obviously has first dibs. Canada approved it, right? Canada is fighting to get some of that. So it will go exactly along the well-trodden path of the vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. Richest countries in the world will make a beeline and purchase as many stocks as they can. It will take months and years for it to trickle down to the global south. The only exception was Merck, right? Okay. I didn't have any hopes of Pfizer having seen how they behave, right, all these months. Merck, the minute their Molnupiravir uh, product was uh, approved by FDA, cut a license, a voluntary license with dozens of companies, and Indian companies are manufacturing it now for pennies, right? That is remarkable. So it's already available in generic forms in India for like, $10, $20 for a course, Mm -hmm. which is remarkable if you think about it. And the speed at it, which was done. It's incredible. I I just wish there were kind of more companies in the world that thought like Merck. They'll still make money. That's the point, right? Right. They voluntarily. It, not as much, but they're going to make money on volumes, right? right? Volumes is what the world offers us, right? Imagine uh, an affordable antiviral pill for the whole world. That's remarkable. Still a lot and of countries money. are not saying it's still a lot of money. And, and I must say, many countries are not asking for charity. They're saying we just want to pay something that we can afford, right? We're not asking give it for us free. We're willing to pay for it. But we just can't pay like $500 a pill. And that's what I think big pharma simply does not understand because their entire model, if you really think about it, they only care about their returns, right? So keeping their share stockholders, shareholders happy is their only goal. And there is no pressure from their investors. There are people now trying to get pharma investors to challenge their boards and their CEOs to say, what have you done for vaccine equity? right? Your salary as a CEO should also be tied to your performance and how well you address vaccine equity. By their own admission, the pharma, big pharma have said they have failed with vaccine equity, right? They've said it in public, but what are they willing to do about it, right? And and it's tough when you look at the history again, like uh, literally the definition of what a corporation is for in the United States is, is to, to provide value to a shareholder. So that is exactly. our inherent exactly. issue. And look, I uh, this is a for-profit business, <laughs> doesn't make much, but I I think I can be more capable of affecting change by doing that. I believe in capitalism. I think it's gone down uh, a thousand wrong roads. Uh, I think trusting the market to do it on its own has got to take us down a thousand wrong roads. I mean, you look at pharmaceuticals on the one hand, you know, we've seen a thousand times, there's nothing they love more than a chronic condition where you have to take a pill every day or every week for the rest of your or life. Or boosters every year is beautiful it's a, it's for a, that. It's right? a recurring revenue situation. Stream, right? On the other hand, I've had family with stuff like ALS, and you just don't see a lot of money in it. Because there's frankly not that many people with it. It's not difficult to see how that operates and how that works. Can I just ask you that question? And I've been thinking a lot about this too. It seems to me that there are two industries for which world leaders are simply not able to find a way to, I don't know, for the want of a better word, to regulate them or to work with them, but in a manner that is also meeting the global good. For climate change, it's the fossil fuel industry right? Weren't they all over the COP 
26 this year and they were like the dominant group there. Sure. So it is in their interest to prevent the 1.5 or whatever the goals are. And just like the Pfizer's and the Moderna's of the world want us to buy into the yearly boosters forever and they don't care about low-income countries, they will obstruct the TRIPS waiver, they'll do everything possible. So it seems like if we can't get big pharma on, on board and if we can't get the big oil and big gas on board, we will neither really tackle the pandemic nor tackle the climate crisis. So what prevents leaders from having a, a thoughtful strategy about these companies. We need them. At the same time, we cannot work with them as they are currently designed. They're not fit for purpose for our two big crises that we have. You know, I, I honestly think it. this is probably both a gross oversimplification and also pretty on board, which is, you know, it just comes down to money. You know, we had this yeah, yeah, uh, Supreme yeah. Court decision in the U.S. God, what was it now? I don't know. Time is a black hole for me at this point. I don't know about for you, but uh, it's called Citizens United, where we decided that corporations uh, and et cetera could give as much as they wanted. And, you know, we've seen over and over and over again, it might not be a president or a vice president or a majority leader of some sort, but because we don't have term limits, because we don't have age limits, um, you know, these are jobs for life for a lot of these elected yeah, officials yeah, and yeah, certainly yeah. for the non-elected officials like the Supreme Court. And you see that uh, the amount of money that they receive from these interests, yeah. even if the fossil fuel industry itself, even yeah. this year when their profits are, are back up because there's not enough demand and or there's not enough supply and there's more demand and natural gas and Russia and all this stuff, um, even if they're so much smaller than they used to be, the amount they're willing to contribute to hold on to power in any possible way, yeah. truly from the local level where they've got a plastics factory, which is like they yeah, don't give a shit yeah. about cars anymore. They know yeah, their cars yeah, are yeah. They're just going to make plastic. Yeah. All the yeah. way up to the national level. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not difficult to, to literally trace uh, the effects of that money to do, even if we don't have the accountability, we have the transparency. And you just see that... I mean, it is it is the human condition that they're going to keep folks in office or going the longer you're in office, the more power you accumulate from being in office because absolutely your positions are almost entirely yeah. based on seniority. You're going to gain more money and gain more influence. And then those folks, I mean, we've had conversations with folks before, they will literally, these interests, whether it's fossil fuels or um, it's big tech in some way, you know, like you said, pharmaceuticals, they will literally write the legislation. It's not just like give money and hope it goes away. Wow. They will write the legislation and wow. that's when you're going and have it rubber stamped. <laughs> oh, I get it now, you know? <laughs> And I, I think the inability to control the, the gun control itself is a beautiful case study, right? I mean, year after year, kids are getting slaughtered in schools, and yet no politician is able to actually do anything about this. I try to really frame this as a informal <laughs> colleague and co-conspirator, uh, uh, Azim, um, has this great thought of like framing thing is trying to frame our work as future positive, right? Which is we can pick it apart intellectually as much as we want, but let's try to have a little, not hope, but optimism that we can affect change in some way. And so I do try to do that. I do try to help our community see where they can spend their money and their time and their resources most effectively Absolutely. because we can make Absolutely. change. We can bend this needle, but it requires, but there are times to look around and go, Boy, in the U.S., uh, 10 years ago, a classroom full of kindergartners was mowed down by semi-automatic weapons, and we didn't do anything then. And so if we didn't do anything then, when are we going exactly. to do something? What is exactly. more horrific? What is the tipping point? What is the tipping point to change? Yeah. And and hope is, as you rightly said, Quinn, I've been, I've been through really bad, uh, you know, burnouts during this crisis. You know, I try to advocate. I mean, I, I get agitated to, to see no action. And I'm sure I understand how climate advocates and climate scientists feel, right? They're like, oh my God, we've been telling you guys this is coming and yet you're not doing anything. So, uh, and, and, and I wonder, you know, where is, what is the reason to be hopeful, right? Especially given the track record of our, of our leaders. Um, and I read this wonderful book by Jane Goodall um, the called The Book of Hope, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, and I said, God, Jane has written this just for me right now, because I was absolutely devastated to see this happening with the pandemic month after month, variant after variant. And I think one of the reasons that she gives in her book to be hopeful is young people. And I've got to tell you, I think that to me stands out in 
in my own life, my students give me hope. Right. I, I sure. teach a course on global health. I have 160 young undergraduates in my in my class. They are so they're so progressive, smart. They can think it. They can see clear as daylight climate change coming in their future. They can see vaccine equity, such a problem, right? Inequity. They are like angry about all of this. And so maybe is one solution somehow getting rid of the older uh, adult leaders who are failing us left, right and center and giving a chance for young people to lead. I think that's where the, the future of humanity truly lies, I think. What what do you think? I, I mean, I'm fully with you. I couldn't couldn't be more inspired by them. My children are relatively young, but also relatively incredibly privileged. And, and so I, I try to start these conversations with them early, which is just like, you know, it's the Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. And and I imagine your students who are much more <laughs> human beings than my small children are more aware of that because they're more aware of what's happening every day. They read the news, they see it. You know, there's certain structural barriers, like for example, they're not on the board of Exxon at that age. They exactly. literally cannot run for federal office until in the US, what is it, uh, 35 or something for president, but I can't remember what it is for the House and, and, and senators. They are able to take a, to start a company right? They're able to run for local office, to run for a school board, to help how kids are educated, to pass that down, to run for their city council. Because again, climate change and COVID, it's the air you breathe. It's the water you drink. It's the food you eat if food is available to you, if clean, healthy, affordable food is available to you. And I think people are aware of that, not just because these generations like your students, I mean, they're 20, so they've been through two recessions at this point, which we've clawed our way out of, but we're still dealing with them. And I, and I think, and from the folks I've talked to, I appreciate that their attitude is just it's pretty black and white that's just like look this isn't good enough you're it's not good enough and yeah. get fucked like yeah it's yeah. got to be a million times better and absolutely this is why i think you see a lot of folks who are like you know we have this idea in the u.s of primaries which is if you were an incumbent office holder uh dr pai and, and i was some young progressive rebel you know i would primary you even though i'm from your own party just saying mm -hmm. like sure mm -hmm. you might have good principles but your voting record shows that you're aligned with mm -hmm. the money and and mm -hmm. and the status quo and mm -hmm. look around California is mm. burning down. Canada mm -hmm. is burning. Mm. That wasn't supposed to happen, and no. it's not good enough. And I know that you think it's radical, but look around, and it's not. Mm. And vaccine mm -hmm. equity is not good enough. And we've, like mm -hmm. you said, we're 10 years back now in tuberculosis mm -hmm. and all of mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's always going to be an argument, certainly, and I and I and I believe in it that that experience does matter in those mm -hmm. places. But the only way to get experience is to. To, to do go it, through to it. get these yeah. people in it, to get them going and to do yeah. things. And that's why you see there's one of my favorite organizations you would love is this organization in the U.S. run by a friend, Amanda Littman. It's called Run for Something. Mm -hmm. And they work with, if you were under 40 and progressive and you said, I want to run for city council, school board, state office, whatever, they will mm -hmm. help you build a campaign basically and learn how to do it. And that's our idea is we've got to get younger people, these progressive mm -hmm. people that care about the people around them, that mm -hmm. are ready to do the right thing, that are demographically mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. more diverse. Mm -hmm. We have to put them in office. That's the only way we're going to get there. And it has to start from the bottom up because the top down, it's the well is just so poisoned with the money. Absolutely. And again, it seems crazy when you watch Armageddon and, and all these movies over the years about like we come together and Independence Day and this and this to go like, no, we just literally have to take all of our resources You've got the world's biggest military, which inexplicably still has bases all around the world. Whatever it takes to help these countries with shots that aren't expiring, that shots that work really well, to end this thing. And you can take the muscle, and it's going to be incredibly complicated, to spend the next 10 months doing everything you can. Well, we, we did it in the past, didn't we? We, we got sure. rid of smallpox. We brought polio sure. down to the last few digits. Right? We're capable of doing great things, but it really requires enlightened leadership, right? Global level leadership. Imagine a Zoom call of all G7 leaders get together and say, hey guys, this is just completely out of control, right? We are bleeding money globally, right? Our own countries are wrecked by these new variants. Let's get the shit done, right? Let's put 50 billion on the table, right? What let's carve it up, right? Oh and then let's be saviors, right? We come out looking superb, right? G7 leaders managed to end this carnage for the whole world, right? The world will be eternally grateful to the Bidens and the Trudeaus. And nope, they're just not interested. It's perplexing to me.
And and what about all our billionaires, Quinn? Single-handedly, they could have vaccinated the world. Just single-handedly. One person, one of these rich guys. And instead, they're choosing to fly off to the space right now in one of the biggest pandemic crisis the world has seen in a century with people, so many people dying, struggling to get basic stuff. We can't get a fair wage, right? I mean, what kind of... Uh, that's why that Netflix movie, I'm sure you watched uh, Don't Look Up, right? It was dramatic to watch, right? It was funny, but at the same time, all climate scientists and pandemic scientists are like, oh my God, this is too close to reality. Ne- necessary, traumatic, uh, funny, all, all of the things, you know? It was almost like the script was designed with the pandemic in mind. I realized that later on it was more about climate crisis. I think you can apply it to a few systemic things, certainly. Yes, yes. So if there was a comet headed towards the Earth in, in say, two, three months, do you think we'll get our shit together to to, uh, take it off course? I think we would. I think it's so singular and specific. Yeah. You know, this one thing that we need to do as opposed to, oh, my God, the logistics, like there's 88 countries in Africa. How are we going to do when they're all different leadership? It's not dependable on this. Yeah. Whatever. We have actually a fantastic episode I'll send you after this uh, with a gentleman named uh, Dr. K.T. Ramesh, who effectively has has worked his entire career to figure out how we're going to deflect an asteroid and was uh, one of the minds behind that mission, the the, Dash, uh, the DART mission that just launched. And he's just the most tremendous and funny and intelligent human being. And I've been just following this James Webb telescope, right? Now, oh yesterday, yesterday yeah. it, is, it is in orbit. It's incredible. Think about it. The human ingenuity of doing the origami in a flying spacecraft with 300 Talk about failure points. Yeah, it's crazy. So we're capable of ridiculous stuff as humankind, and yet we can't seem to find the the compassion to equitably share it and, and deal with it in the midst of a crisis. That's what is astounding at the same time tragic about our, the human condition, I think. I write these original essays sometimes when I, when I have time. You know, just the, the sort of mantra is do better, better. And it's just the idea of not just like, hey, here's what to do, which is what we focus on a lot. Here's the news and what to do. It's it's more of like, look, we're in this moment where we really have to retrain how to think about things. We have mm. to go down to mm. these first principles of how problems mm. work mm. and how we dissect them and how we work on them for your bank account, Dr. Pai, or your department or your school or your industry, whatever it might be. And I think we could probably spend another couple hours talking about this, but it is interesting how... And I don't think it's a blanket statement by any stretch. There's some incredible organizations and, and folks out there in office and nonprofits, whatever it might be. We have ceased to care for one another in an interesting way. And I think there's a lot of probable reasons behind that. I think you see, I think a lot of folks, for instance, the unvaccinated, at least in the U.S., uh, you know, I don't think it's everyone, but I think there's a lot of folks who have been so adversely affected by misinformation from Facebook, et cetera, that they truly don't even, they couldn't even begin to, even if they wanted to, and I think a lot of them probably do want to, do the right thing. Yeah. Genuinely don't know, because it's not just some surface layer thing they've seen. It is. It has been the language for so long. I know, I know. You know, the loss of community in a lot of ways, I, th- I think it's 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 interesting, and, and we're really going to have to rebuild a lot of those things um, in order for us to address some of these and just also to regain public's trust in science you right all these years as a scientist right i'm I'm an md phd for christ's sakes science has been a big part of my life i didn't even realize we have to defend science now right even the most basic scientific fact is no longer uh, taken as fact it's like some idiot is trolling me Teach, trying to teach me, you know, what medicine is or what public health is. I'm like, people who don't know anything about anything are now weighing in on things that they don't know anything about. Tech bros are telling me how a pandemic works, right? And I'm like, I'm like what is going on with, wrong with people, right? It's like science itself is under such attack, sustained attack. Um, and the Republican Party in the United States, right? Look how they are absolutely undercutting science. Anti-science is a big platform. So fighting misinformation and getting science back its, uh, to where it needs to be will be another uh, decade's worth of work ahead of us, I think. 
uh, a friend of mine uh, is this wonderfully talented and uh, successful and thoughtful uh, screenwriter named John August, and he wrote a movie uh, 10 years ago with this wonderful quote, uh, and I'll send it to you, and he had it made on T-shirts, and it says, they love what science gives them, but not the questions that science asks. And, you know, you can calculate that everything from GPS and the microchips that we're so reliant on that now they're backed up everywhere in the world yeah. uh, to putting them in our electric cars, yeah. but not these questions of like, no, it's called public health for a reason. Like yeah. we discovered this yeah. when we realized that water was dirty and was making everyone sick. And then we decided, by the way, like on the list of shit we need to do, we decided at one point water shouldn't be dirty. And so everywhere we can, we're going to do everything we can to make sure water is not dirty. Yeah. And look at what that solved over the past hundred years. Absolutely. And now you look at, oh, my kids don't want to wear masks or I don't want my kid to wear masks in school and it's oppressive and it's this and this. It's like, at what point do we decide that air should not be dirty or at least should be filtered well and ventilated and just do that work? Because whether it's grossly negligible stuff like the air pollution in the U.S. or in New Delhi or or the streets of London that are making kids sick. I was an asthma kid. I know how horrible it feels not to be able to breathe, but I was... My family had enough money to go to the hospital. Yeah. So many of these kids don't. But just down to the basic classrooms where this, mm-hmm. yes, this virus is invisible, but Jesus, I mean, the government passed enough money to 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 build ventilation in every school system in the U.S. Like, we have Absolutely. to do yeah. the work, and we can do these fundamental things that, again, it's called public health for a reason. But as exactly. soon as we had these pharmaceuticals and as soon as we were able to make it more personalized, we forgot about the shit like washing our hands and making our water clean and our air clean. That is just a fundamental barrier against issues like this. And we, like you said, we are capable of incredibly capable. hard things, of doing incredible things, but we have to decide to do them. So on that note, vis-a-vis action. So I have truly... I have struggled so – we usually try to give people really specific action steps that they can take, not just like call your congressperson. We say call this person, say this, this is the phone number. I have struggled so much, and I'm sure you feel the same way, with finding an effective specific action step, Hmm. as we put it, for a community to take that we're literally building a whole tool to fix this fucking problem. It's going to take a while. It'll apply to a bunch of different stuff. But in Mm -hmm. the meantime – Right now, and then we can put in the show notes, too, and we're going to send an email to everyone. Any specifics you have to put pressure on decision and policymakers, on corporate boards, in Congress, the executive branches, wherever they might be, parliament, to get this thing moving? Anything you have, any recommendations? I think the most important thing we can do is to pressure our governments to to, uh, transfer the vaccine know-how and technology to as many countries. Whoever wants it should be able to make their own vaccine, right? Vaccines for all is, is should be the rallying cry. We simply cannot have the situation of one or two companies holding the world to hostage, not in this uh, crisis, right? It's simply unacceptable. And certainly, I think Americans should really put pressure on the Biden government to make sure Moderna technology is shared publicly. You know why? Because Moderna has already been paid for by you. Right. But you and your listeners, you've already paid for it with your hard earned tax dollars. You have every right to ask your government to pressure that company to share the technology. They, they're claiming that they will will do it, but they haven't. Right. Um, so there's no accountability here. And NIH scientists co-created it. Right. Um, so so this is truly a global public good. And so that should be absolutely fundamental. Here in Canada, we are pushing all our citizens to write to our MPs and our prime minister, asking Canada to back the TRIPS waiver, asking Canada to donate way more than we have done and increase our financial contribution to ACT Accelerator and COVAX so that countries will have syringes to buy, you know, vaccination campaigns take a lot of resources too, right? And that's that's what we are pushing for. I think as you said, there's no one magic bullet. We need to do multiple things to to get this pandemic under control. All right. Well, we will try to make those specific for folks as, as we can so we can make some progress on this thing. Um, I just have a last couple quick questions we ask everybody, and then I will get you out of here if that's okay. Um, a little more philosophical. Doctor, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, either yourself as part of a group or a lab or a class, 
whatever, or in your family on the playground, whatever it might have been? The first time I felt that I could meaningfully do something was when I was training to be a doctor because I was learning something, right? I knew I could actually help people with that medical knowledge that I had. So as a young medical student, I felt for the first time that that there's something meaningful that I could achieve in my life. I love that. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? In the past six months, in the actually in the past one year, I have been relentlessly advocating for global vaccine equity. If you can go back and look at my posts, my tweets, because I realized that this is going to be ending up in a very bad situation if we didn't do that, right? But I think I've met wonderful uh, global experts along the way who have truly inspired me with their work in this area too, right? I don't, I cannot at all claim that I'm the only one. There are many, many people like me, but some of them have been absolutely gangbusters on calling out the inequities and the injustice. So I, I would say uh, my fellow vaccine equity warriors around the world have been very inspired and we are like a small community. So we are in touch with each other on phone and Twitter and whatnot. And we try to amplify each other and, and lift each other. So I would say those are the people who've inspired me a lot in the last six months. I love that. And last one, what is a, a book you've read recently, we like to say in the past year, that has opened your mind uh, to a topic you haven't considered before, or that's actually changed your thinking in some way? We've got a whole list we share with everybody. The book that I think I read and I blogged about it is by an author called Ben Phillips. It's about how to fight inequity, how to fight inequality, and why the fight needs you, right? Highly relevant to the topic of how do we fight against sure. uh, vaccine inequity or climate crisis. And Ben Phillips, it's a small book, and it's beautifully written, simply written. Basically, his, his conclusion is leaders will never lead the fight because it is their job not to do so. In other words, don't expect leaders to solve climate crisis. Don't expect politicians to solve the pandemic. He said a citizen's mass movement is the only thing that finally works. And he gave lots of historic examples from civil rights, right? It's, it takes passionate average people like you and I to finally tip the, the scale to where it needs to be tipped, right? That's why I'm starting to believe that citizen advocacy will push our leaders to end this pandemic because by themselves, we've seen that they're not doing it. Same thing like Greta and Malala and others. It is citizens movement that they've created around gender rights, citizens movement around climate crisis. I think it is that kind of mass movement of all average everyday people that will finally bend the arc towards moral justice, uh, so to speak. I love it. I can't wait to get my hands on that. I mean, it seems, feels like it's written for me. That's delightful. Dr. Pai, I cannot thank you enough uh, for your time, for your advocacy, for for everything you're doing. I, I, I desperately want to be one of your students now. <laughs> thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed learning from you. I love it oh, that geez. this was a conversation, that I learned something from you and you learned something from me and not just a monologue from my side. So nicely done. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Um, hopefully we can check in down the line. We've made a little progress. But uh, we're, we're going to put a dent in this thing. We're going to do what we can. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sincerely. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at Important Not Imp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important. Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.